It is definitely good to be back. It's great to be back. Um, yeah, I was telling the staff this week, maybe one of my big takeaways just from being gone, um, time in Israel with a lot of incredible people, many from this church. Um, you know, sometimes people say that Crossroads is a little too deep. And my big takeaway is we're not deep enough. Like, we need to go more into Christ. We are living in such a time where we can't just sprinkle a little Jesus on our lives. Um, God wants us to be his church in his world. And, and it's a time, for such a time as right now, uh, to, to just push ourselves as deep as we can into Christ and push ourselves as deep as we can into our world. And uh, anyway, that's just a small little takeaway from me. All right, we're in a series called Meals with Jesus. I'm hoping I can keep it together this morning. This is, uh, I don't know, just in light of where I've been, my heart is just full. And uh, we're looking at, at, at a story I hardly want to touch. In fact, I'll just say right now, we, we have mikvah bowls up here. Uh, mikvah at our church is a symbolic way of doing repentance. Uh, we can do repentance in our hearts, but sometimes it's a wonderful thing to get out of our chair and to place ourselves at the feet of Jesus and to wash and to repent uh, and to recommit ourselves. And that's why uh, we, we do this. We wash our hands because of the things that we've done. We wash our, our, our hearts because of uh, the things that we have willed. Uh, we wash our head, our mouths because of the things that we've thought and said. We wash our eyes because of the things that we've looked at. And then we just recommit ourselves uh, to, to Christ. So at any time in the gathering, I don't care. You can do it right now if you want. Um, let's turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Beginning at verse 36 can't believe I'm skipping over verses 34 and 35, but that's okay. That's enough to just make you curious. Uh, this is found on page 731. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town entered learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster box of perfume. And as she stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he just said to himself, this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him. And what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them, neither of them had the money to pay him back. 
So the lender canceled the debts of both. Now which of them love him more? Simon replied, uh, I, I suppose, well, um, you know, it, I can just see that's what he's doing. doesn't want to answer the question, but he has to. Suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You judge correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. She has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus looked at her and said, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go into shalom. This is God's word. Be seated. Like I said, I, I, I hardly dare touch uh, this story. It's it just, it's, it's amazing. And it's a story that many of us know. And we could literally just read the story and, and, and go home right now. Um, because I know it's already had an effect, a profound effect on our hearts. It, it, it starts with one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And I feel like we need to just say a few things about the Pharisees because the Pharisees I think, are one of the most misunderstood groups in the Bible. Uh, but the Pharisees are all over the Gospels, and there's a reason for this. Josephus, the first century historian, tells us that the Pharisees were easily the most respected people of Jesus' day. People revered them. They listened to them. They followed them. Because the Pharisees were so passionate about God and living these pure, obedient lives. And I think to understand why they were this way, we need to also understand what they are a response to because they're born out of something. When the Greeks took over that part of the world, the Greeks brought a culture that was rooted in a worldview and produced a lifestyle. This worldview and lifestyle was highly individualistic, materialistic, hedonistic, saturated in sex, and it collided with the biblical worldview and way of life, producing this massive culture war. And it's out of this culture war that the Pharisees emerge because they insisted we are not going to become like the world around us. And so they devoted themselves to God. They devoted themselves to God's word with the one primary aim being we are going to be pure. Who can approach God, the psalmist asks. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. In fact, the word Pharisee comes from the word, uh, it's, it's perush, which means to separate so the Pharisees, literally, it's, they're called the separate ones. Because this is the way they pursued purity. It was by separating themselves from the world. Don't taste, don't touch, 
don't look at, don't associate with. And that's a Pharisee. So this Pharisee invites Jesus into his home uh, for a meal. And, and in light of what we've learned about meals, meals in the ancient world um, are a statement. This man is making a statement. He's saying to Jesus, Jesus, I want you in my life. I want to have relationship with you. We need to see this. Now, there's some details in this story that also let us know this is not just a one-on-one meal. Because they're not sitting. In the Jewish ancient world, you, you, you sat when you were just eating a meal, but when you had a feast and banquet where, where, where guests were invited in, you reclined. You, you, you kind of did it the Roman way. And here's what this would have looked like. I think I have a PowerPoint this morning that I got last minute to RJ, and I love that guy so much because he has to put up with me every single week doing this. This is what you need to envision. You need to envision just all of them sitting at a table, their feet back, the food in the middle, uh, and then also, because you can't see the rest of the room, uh, guests would be allowed to come in, especially if uh, the host was going to have a rabbi, a famous rabbi there. Uh, the, the guests could come in and stand around the walls and listen to the conversation that was going on. So in this situation, the famous rabbi who's been invited is Jesus. In fact, he has, uh, he's the guest of honor because he's sitting in the VIP place right next to the host. And at some point during this meal, in comes this woman. The text literally reads, a, a, a woman of the city. And then it has to add, just so that we know what kind of woman of the city this is, a sinner. So all the commentators uh, say a woman of the city is, is, is almost like saying a streetwalker. She's a sinner. She's a prostitute. In verse 37, when you look at it, we, we, we know that, that she came for a specific reason. The reason she came is because she knows Jesus is going to be at this feast, and she wants to anoint Jesus' feet from the oil, from the alabaster box that she possesses. Now let me say something about an alabaster box. An alabaster box in the ancient world is this small flask-like box of very, very expensive perfume from India. Um, it's in the form of oil. It's spikenard. It's, it, it, it's myrrh. And, and, and it's concocted in, a, in, in such a way that, that it, it produces this, this beautiful aroma. In fact, the wealthy women of Jesus' day would, would make this into a necklace and they would wear it around their neck kind of the way women today might wear jewelry, expensive jewelry. Um, and, and for this woman, she takes this. Something that is worth thousands of dollars. And she dabs it on Jesus. Now, another thing to consider, trust me, I just got back from Israel. Um, it's a hot climate there. 
In fact, the way that we do it is um, we walk a lot, just like the ancients. And in walking a lot, you get sweaty, and sweat produces some wonderful locker room smells. Um, and now consider this world, not only is it that, but they don't have deodorant, they, they don't have showers, they don't have uh, all the things that, that make us clean and, and smell good. So it's a world with a lot of smells. Just know that. One small drop of this oil from this alabaster box will, will, will kill every smell. And immediately fill a room with something just beautifully fragrant. In fact, the common courtesy of that day is that when you entered someone's home, the first thing the host or hostess would do is put a little dab of that perfume, that oil, on a person's forehead. Now, Ken Bailey, who is an expert on Middle Eastern culture because he not only studies the Bible, but for 20 years uh, he has lived in this culture, he suggests in his commentary that this woman took notice of how Jesus was not welcomed properly by this Pharisee, and, 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 and it, it, it starts to bug her so much that she responds then by giving Jesus the proper treatment he deserves. Now, I like that, but I think it's more than that. I think it's deeper than this. Because if you go back two chapters to Luke chapter 5, verse 13, you see that the Pharisees and the religious leaders are already very frustrated with Jesus over one specific thing. His eating habits. It's not just that he has bad manners. It's who he's eating with. They're already complaining that Jesus is eating with sinners. If I would have read Luke 7, verse 34, it would be in today's text. And look at this. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So I think that this woman has already encountered Jesus, possibly at one of those meals that Jesus hosts with these sinners. And because Jesus' mission is to seek and to save the lost, to set the captive free, I believe Jesus has already radically touched her and changed her life. And so now here she is, free from her past, healed from all her mistakes, her life exploding with the joy that comes from the freedom of being in Christ. She's coming to Jesus to express all her love and all of her gratefulness. And here's what happens, the text lets us know, is that as she is making her way to Jesus, she's just overcome with emotion. And she just starts to weep. And by the time she gets to Jesus' feet, the tears are dripping from her cheeks and her chin, drenching Jesus' feet. 
And then she does the unthinkable. She starts washing Jesus' feet with her hair. Now you have to understand, to, to, to do this, she would have had to let her hair down. And in our culture, this is not even a deal. But in that culture, this is, this is a huge deal. A woman in public never, ever lets her hair down. Her hair is always covered. Uh, a, a woman in this world would, would, would only let her hair down when she was with her husband. I mean, it's a little bit maybe like in our world when a, when a woman just kind of frisks her hair a little bit and <laughs> shakes it around. I mean, we, we, we kind of know what, what that means. In, in, in this world, what this woman is doing is utterly outrageous. It's incredibly offensive. The rabbis already are teaching that if a woman ever did this in public, um, a wife, that is, it was grounds for divorce. Now, some scholars have suggested that this, this is, is sexual. And it's like we always have to project our, 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 our modern condition on, onto the text. Because ever since the days of, of Sigmund Freud, psychologists have told us that all spirituality is nothing but repressed sexuality. It's the idea that, that all spiritual expression is, is, is just the release of our, of our sexual urges. <laughs> what a joke. Seriously. How... how how dehumanizing. Because the Bible teaches just the opposite. That sexuality is repressed spirituality. And if you're wondering why our culture is so sexually obsessed today, it's because we have repressed God. We've repressed his Christ. We've repressed the gospel. And what so many people today are trying to get from sex is really just the deepest longing of their hearts because our hearts were made first and foremost to know God. This woman takes her alabaster box, her most prized possession. Not only was this thing of great financial worth to her, worth thousands of dollars, but think about it. She's a prostitute. This box is what made her beautiful. It's what made her attractive. It's the little capital that she has. And she, she, she needs this box so that she can be desirable. In verse 38, so worth reading. And she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped him with her hair, kissed him. And poured, she poured. If you know anything about this box, you can't pour it out. It only comes out in little drops. The only way to pour out the oil is you have to break the neck of the jar so you can pour it out. She poured it all out. And, and this is where we need to consider what exactly she poured out. She just poured out her very life. She gave Jesus everything. Her significance, her worth, her security, her capital, her past, 
the, the, the limited leverage and power that she has in the world. I mean, here it is, Jesus. You get it all. She just took her pearl of great price and poured it all over Jesus' feet. And why did she do this? It's simple to say to Jesus, Jesus, you are now my pearl of great price. You know, I, I, I can't go any further without asking this all-important question. Do you, do I love Jesus? Do we love him? And how much? Where are the tears? Where's the passion? Where's the touch? Where's the the breaking of our boxes? Because we all have a box. We all have someone or something from which we derive our our, our worth and our significance. We, We all have our little preciouses. And we hold on to these, these, these things and we can't give them up because they give us security, they give us comfort, they give us a little bit of power and a little bit of leverage. And, and, and so we hold on to them. Not so with this woman. She gives Jesus her everything. And this Pharisee is, is watching this In fact, by this point in the game, the whole room is watching this. And I think the breaking point for this Pharisee, especially when when you look at verse 39, is is all the touching. (laughs) He doesn't like all that touch. And so the disgust is probably written all over his face, the embarrassment that this is going on under his roof with all these guests watching it, and he starts muttering things under his breath loud enough for Jesus to hear. I mean, look at verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him into this said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Remember, the, the, the Pharisees' life aim is, 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 is to be pure, and it, it's to be pure uh, by separation. We don't touch sin. We don't touch sinners. We, we separate ourselves from all this. How dare you do this, Jesus, in my house? Makes me wonder what makes us uncomfortable today. Makes me wonder what would make us uncomfortable in church. Look at us. Look at you. Sitting all nice and rose, all just domesticated. And... <laughs> and me too. I just sat in that spot right over there. You know, before we pick up stones and throw them at this Pharisee, we should ask ourselves, are, are, are we any different? I mean, think about our culture wars today, because we're in a we're in a big one, aren't we? Everyone's picking up stones these days. I mean, just 
spend a little time on Twitter, spend a little, spend a little time on, on Facebook. And, and sadly, some of the most critical, judgmental attitudes are coming from us. And we have to ask ourselves, like, like, like where does this come from? This critical spirit, this, this, this spewing out of, 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 of all these judgmental things towards, towards different groups, different people, uh, uh, different ideas. Well, why is a Pharisee a Pharisee? And there are three practices that define the Pharisees. Three, three practices that in their day were called acts of Zedekah or, or, or acts of righteousness. And I think there are three things that we would agree are, are, are incredible. The first was their prayer life. The Pharisees prayed all the time. The second is they fasted. They literally took two days of the week to fast. And the third was, was their total devotion to the poor. The Pharisees took a lot of their resources and gave them for, 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 for the underprivileged and, and the poor, the widow, the orphan. And Jesus takes on all three of these things in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. And he says, you, you pray to be heard, you fast to be seen, and you give to the poor. So you can blog about it. Thank you, some person laughed at least. <laughs> Sound familiar? And what Jesus is saying is, is, is everything that you are for God and do for God is really just self-serving, self-worship, to exalt yourself. You're doing these things to feel approved of yourself so you can pray prayers like, God, I thank you that I'm not like that person or those people. I mean, we have to see the inherent danger of being a Christian. It's dangerous. Because our heart can so quickly make it all about us in a way that it serves us instead of serving God. Where we live good lives and we go to church and we say our prayers and we abstain from the impurities of our world and we believe all the right things and we show concern for justice all the while not knowing that we're really actually doing these, these things uh, not for God but for ourselves so we can just have a one-up. Or see ourselves as superior. Or to maintain control over our lives. I mean, Frederick Nietzsche was right in this regard. In, in many ways, religion can be a power play. People can use God and, and, and the things they do in the name of God as a power play with others. Gives me a one-up. Gives me control. I, I, I can subtly use God as a weapon to not only control my life, but to control the lives of others. And I think where this really gets bad is sometimes this power play extends to God himself. We're in our exalted state. We no longer see ourselves as debtors. Debtors. Instead, God is indebted to us. 
And see, right now, we, we're stepping into some pretty scary stuff. And I want to ask a question right now, a question that I asked of my own heart as I prepared this week. But now I want to ask it of you because I think this question cuts through all the chase. Are you a debtor? Do you see yourself as a debtor? Because now we are stepping into the heart of the matter. Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Say it, Rabbi. I like that. Look at what he says in verses 41 to 42. Tells a parable. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? One had a credit card debt of $1,000 and another had a a bank mortgage of a million dollars. Neither one of them could pay. The lender says to each of them, it's okay. I got this. I'm going to cancel out your debt. Why does Jesus tell this parable? For the simple reason that Simon doesn't see his need. He's too good. He's too pure. He's too righteous to see that he's a debtor. And yeah, maybe he is the one in the parable who owes the 50 denarii and the woman is the one who owes 10 times that much, the 500 denarii. But here's what the parable says. They are both debtors and they both need someone to pay their debt. So Christian, whether you are good or bad, religious or irreligious, spiritual or unspiritual, we better know our debt. And we can't pay it. Every single one of us right now in this room are debtors apart from God. And see, if, 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 if we don't know this, then our Christianity becomes very, very dangerous. Because not only does Simon not see that he's a debtor, but it goes further than this because he doesn't then see the, the cost that it took to pay his debt that he can't see. And if you know anything about forgiveness, forgiveness never happens without someone getting hurt. Someone has to pay for every offense. If I smash your car and you forgive me, that means you pay and you bear the hurt. But if you don't for forgive, that means I have to pay and I bear the hurt. That's how it is with every offense, every wrong, every injustice, every crime, every sin. Someone has to pay. Someone has to bear the hurt, which is why all forgiveness is suffering. And Jesus doesn't just say to this woman, 
I forgive you. Jesus paid her debt. And think about what it cost Jesus to forgive her debt. Simon's debt. Our debt. Just go to the end of Luke's gospel. The nails, the thorns, the cries of agony, the hell. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us true peace was placed upon him by his wounds. We're healed. In fact, if you want to see this in the image of the text, Jesus became the alabaster box. He, he was literally broke broken open so his intense love could be poured out. Here's what the Simons of the world want. And I'm keeping my ear close to the ground because I'm hearing more Christians who want this. They want a Christ without a cross. Come on. Who needs all that suffering and all that blood? Why do I come to church and sing about the blood of Jesus? It's because the Simons of the world don't want to acknowledge their debt and how much it cost Christ to pay it. Which is why with the Simons of the world, we're all domesticated. We're in control. There's no tears. There's no touch. There's no letting down of the hair. There's no taking of our box and breaking it open. In essence, what Jesus is saying to Simon is this. Simon, you know what? You're interested in me. You're you're, you're curious about me. This woman loves me. That's why he says, Simon, look at her. The tears, her hair, the kisses, the alabaster box. You, Simon, didn't even perform the common courtesies. No water, no towel, no oil, no kiss. Simon, you need to know the ones who get me, the ones who get my love, the ones who get my joy, the one who, 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 who my, my power is unleashed in their life, are, are, are not the ones who come to me with conditions or even invite me into their home in a detached, impersonal sort of way. The ones who get me are like this woman who abandoned all conditions and love me with everything they have. Do we love Jesus? And here's where my heart went this week. How do I love Jesus the way this woman loves Jesus? And Jesus gives us the simple answer in verse 47. He says, her many sins are forgiven because she loved much. Now here's where we need to see what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying because she mustered up enough love, I decided then to forgive her sins. No, Jesus is really saying the opposite. He's saying the reason why this woman loves much is because she was forgiven much. 
And then you, Simon, the reason why the one who is forgiven little loves little In fact, if you don't hear anything I say today, would you just please, right now, wake up and listen? Jesus just explained why some people are so capable of love. And I'm not just talking about loving God, but I'm talking about loving people. I'm talking about loving our enemies, even. I'm talking about loving life. And why some people are incapable of that kind of love. According to Jesus, our ability to love is rooted in seeing how forgiven we really are. And here's the deal. To see how forgiven we really are, we need to see how great our debt really is. And what it costs God to pay that debt. I'll say that again. Our ability to love is rooted in seeing how forgiven we are. And to see how forgiven we are, we have to see how great our debt is and what it costs God to forgive us that debt. Or I'll put it another way. If you don't see what a great debtor you are and how forgiven you are and how much it costs God to forgive you, you'll be incapable of love. I I could not stop thinking about Derek Tages. And anyone who, who, who knew Derek will know why I couldn't stop thinking about him this week. That that guy's love. He was our youth pastor. And God take him to be with him years ago. His love for God was so passionate, it was so loud, it was beautiful. And it wasn't just love for God, it was, it, was, it was love for life, it was love for people. My daughter two weeks ago was just remembering Derek and she literally started bawling. What I remember about Derek is how he prayed. Sometimes as, as, as staff, we'll just literally get right on the floor. And I had, I've never heard Derek ever pray a prayer where he didn't go to what a sinner he was and how much God had forgiven him. That's the principle. The people who love big and are free to express love are the people who know they are forgiven debtors. See, both aspects of that are important because if I see my debt without the forgiveness, I see myself as just a failure. But if I see the forgiveness without the death, it doesn't affect me or change me or make me want to sing. But when I know how great my debt is and how much it costs God to forgive my debt... I I can't be a Simon. I can't be anything but this woman. And that's why Jesus, his application is this simple. Look at her. 
She doesn't care what she looks like. She doesn't care what her culture thinks. She doesn't care what the people in the room think. And that's the deal. When we know our debt and what it costs God to forgiveness, there's this confident humility, this humble confidence that permeates our life. We're so humble that we're bowed at Jesus' feet because we're debtors. And yet we're so confident that we can lay our let our hair down because we're so forgiven. That's the gospel. Ask yourself this question. Who are you in this story? If you're still a hypercritical person and quick to judge other people that are not like you or not like your tribe, you know what? You're probably a Simon. You don't know your debt. Because the truth is, you're no better than the person you're judging. If your faith today is is unaffected, where there are no tears and no letting of your hair down, there's no pouring out of your life, your guts, your treasure, where you constantly just kind of relate to God on your terms in this controlled, impersonal kind of way, you're probably a Simon. If you're constantly obsessed with what other people think, your appearance, and therefore probably struggling with these two extremes, insecurity and pride, you're probably a Simon. You're struggling right now to love God with everything you have. Or you're struggling to love someone in your life, it it, it could be anyone. Or you're struggling to love life itself probably a Simon. You've forgotten that you're a debtor and what it costs God to forgive you of your debt. And God wants to say to you, to us, what he says to Simon. Look at this woman. Because throughout the Gospels, it's outcasts like this woman with the humility and the guts who show us what it means to be a Christian. And what this woman is showing us is God. She's showing us God's heart. God isn't some impersonal, detached God just far away. God came to us with blood and sweat and tears and touch. And he more than let his hair down. He gave up his most precious. His precious was broken open. And the love and the forgiveness was poured out as an offering. The nails, the crown, the cries. Because the one also who forgives much is the one who loves much. And if you want to know this morning how much the God of the universe loves you, see how much he forgave and what it cost him to forgive. Mikvah. Sometimes we just can't sit in our chairs. Sometimes the appropriate thing to do 
is to come forward and to bow at his feet and say, Jesus, here I am. God, thank you for this story. By the power of your spirit, may we repent of being good Pharisees. And God, make us into this woman with her kind of love, her passion, her tears. Because you're worth it. In Jesus' name, amen.